I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's podcast has been sponsored by Libro.fm Audiobooks. Libro, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated lists from people like me who know books best and also from local booksellers. You can go on Libro.fm playlists and look at the Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books playlist and go from there. If you enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you'll, at checkout, you'll get three audiobooks for the price of one. So please check it out. Z-I-B-B-Y, three audiobooks for the price of one. I'm so excited to be here today with Laura Zygman, who's the author of Animal Husbandry, Dating Big Bird, Piece of Work, Her, and her latest novel, Separation Anxiety. She has been a contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and HuffPost. Her novel, Animal Husbandry, was made into the movie Someone Like You with Ashley Judd and Hugh Jackman. She produced a popular online series of animated videos called Annoying Conversations and was the recipient of a Yaddo residency. She currently lives with her husband, son, and dog. So welcome, Laura. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks. I'm thrilled to be here. So we were just talking a while ago, a year ago, I read the news that Laura's book, Separation Anxiety, had been picked up for a book deal in Publishers Marketplace. And I was doing this very short-lived <laughs> video called The Highlights, where I was talking about all the really cool things in the book industry for the week, which I ran out of time to do. Anyway, I mentioned Laura's book deal in the video and posted it and she wrote me back right away which was so cool and now here we are and the book is coming out and it's just so exciting. It's so exciting because that was my first time having anything to do with a book in you know 14 or 15 years and it was my first thing on social media because back when my last book was published Facebook wasn't even out. Twitter wasn't out. It was MySpace. So it was really exciting to see something on Instagram. <laughs> I'm glad I've ushered you I've dated into myself the, right away. I know I was going to say. So Ooh. sad. Maybe I shouldn't have no, don't be silly. Well, anyway, I'm pleased I could bring you into the modern era, but now you're just crushing it all over. So anyway, so Separation Anxiety, what inspired you to write this book and what is it about? Separation Anxiety is about a couple who can't really afford to get divorced. And so they have to live together and stay in the same house. They live in separate parts of the house because the cover for their newly teenage son is that, you know, one of them snores. Of course, it's Judy who snores, but she blames that it's Gary who snores. But he sleeps in the basement in a spare bedroom. And it's also about Judy who has gotten to a point in her life at 50 where a lot of us get at that age where loss seems to be the prevalent thing where, you know, she's lost both of her parents and her career has gone downhill and she can't seem to kind of get things going. And, you know, obviously her marriage is, uh, you know, challenging. And her son is now a teenager who becomes just a typical kind of quiet, secretive kid that she can no longer, you know, snuggle. And so in that emotional space, she one day looks at the dog and decides to start to wear the dog in an old baby sling. An old baby sling that she never even wore her son in, but that she was cleaning out the basement to try to declutter and suddenly finds the sling and thinks, oh boy, 
I'm going to put the dog in there. And that's did, her form of self-comfort. You, did you do that? No. So I, <laughs> you know, this is where fiction comes in. So f- my fiction is, I call it semi-autobiographical fiction, but it's always based on things that I'm going through or that friends of mine are going through. And, and so I had gotten a dog late in life, 11 years ago. I didn't grow up with animals, pets. My family was allergic. So when we got a dog 11 years ago, I just, you know, like the lights went on. I finally understood what it meant to have that kind of support, you know, like not actually a support dog for me, but it really became one. So even though I never actually wore my dog in a sling, I feel like I wore my dog because my dog, whose name is Lady, was with me during a lot of really, really difficult times when both my parents got ill, I had my dog with me at the hospital or the treatments or whatever. And in all phases of my life since then, which, you know, are challenging in different ways, like the dog is just a huge part of it. So again, I never actually wore it, but now I see that there are slings. You can buy dog slings. Uh, Margaret Cho wears her dog in a sling. She's a chihuahua, I think. So she is on the red carpet with her dog in an actual dog sling they make them. You need to you need to brand them. You right. need to make your own. Next yeah. year. Next year. Yeah, that's your brand you can extension. Help me with that. Sure. Yeah. So that's uh, but I when I wrote this I didn't I didn't know they were dog slings. Like I didn't I just c- kind of came up with it because I thought, "Oh, that would be so nice to carry my dog around, actually carry her with me." There's something so nice about having something like pressed yeah. up against your heart, yeah. you know, like a baby. Yeah, except like not a baby anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why people are like, I can't wait to be a grandmother just to yeah. hold a baby again. Know. You know, it's very comforting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I worked actually at a at a new baby unit at Mount Sinai Hospital when I was in high school, and I volunteered there like once a week every afternoon. I got to just hold the babies. Oh my God, I know. So cute. And it's like my dream. Yeah. That was. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> there was this one Down syndrome baby who got abandoned at the hospital, so I formed this whole attachment. But anyway, so I know I under yeah, I can yeah. relate to that feeling of yeah. wanting the dog next to you. Yeah. And by the way, when I was reading this, I was in this like very posh Beverly Hills hair salon, actually getting my highlights done. <laughs> so it's all coming full circle. And they're and beautiful. Literally, like four women came up to me and said, "Is that really a dog in that sling? Is that you? you know, tell me about this book." So anyway, great cover. <laughs> I love it, too. It's funny you said this book is about a couple that can't afford to get divorced, which obviously is one of the main plot lines. But it's also about the separation anxiety of a child growing up, which I feel like to me is super relevant. I have two 12-and-a-half-year-olds. I was hoping I could just read this passage, which got to me, and then you can talk about it. I'm 50 when I head down to the basement. My son is 13. He no longer wears matching pajamas or explains the virtues of buttermilk Eggo waffles compared to home style or holds my hand when we cross the street or walk through a supermarket. He no longer begs for Legos, pulling me into the store at the mall, pointing at the boxes, jewels on the shelves, gifts waiting to begin. It's hard for me to believe those moments ever happened, that I was ever in the middle of all that love and time and possibility, and that now I'm not. Life, I'm like about to cry. <laughs> Life eventually takes away everyone and everything we love and leaves us bereft. Is that its sad lesson? Oh, I mean, like, how can you read this passage and not want to cry? Tell me about writing this passage and, and the feelings behind it. You know, I started writing this about four years ago, and and it was a a tough time as I hadn't been writing in a long time. I had had a massive case of writer's block for years and years, and so I was really out of the game, out of the business. I saw all my friends were publishing, and I was happy for them. And I really, you know, finally got back and decided to really, in between other things I was doing to earn a living, to try to write this novel. And I had no interest, really, in writing just a really light, fluffy book. 
um, especially once politics changed, once I was in actually writing it. I mean, it took me three or four years to write. The world took on a really kind of deeper, more serious tone. And I just wanted, I wanted to be real and talk about what it feels like to be in your 50s, you know, with a marriage. I mean, all of us, if you're married, most people have challenging marriages, whether you know, they admit it or not, or whether they resolve them or not and stay together. Most people, if, if, you're, ma- if you're married, you, you have a, a challenging situation. And if you have kids, you know, they grow up and that's hard. Of course, it's not as hard as people who actually lose their kids, but you do lose that version of your child when they, when they turn into a teenager. You know, you, as you know, you know, you're used to sort of like you go in their room at night and you say goodnight and they tell you everything. They tell you everything. It's just like they talk and they talk and they talk and you know every single thing they're thinking about. You know what they like, what the games they want to do. That this is, And suddenly they stop talking, especially boys. You know, they're socialized. Like, and you can raise them however you think, you know, to prevent that, but it's just a stage. And my son is now 19 and you know, we talk a lot now, but I mean, it was okay. like, you know, so there was come just back a, there's a, a period. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, I'm really lucky. And, and most kids I, I know, friends of mine whose kids, you know, they go through that phase and then they, they come back. But it's, it's really hard when you're facing it. You, it's such an abrupt, it's like all of a sudden this wall comes down and it's, it's really sad, you know, to have that because you, you miss that real connection. That opaque, you know, opaque feeling. You wrote another passage, and then I'll stop <laughs> making myself cry here. Every day, I try to square the fact that I don't know, can't know, will never know everything crossing his mind. The minute it crosses it, the way I used to, because he used to tell me and doesn't anymore. Sometimes even the dog isn't enough to keep those molecules from coming apart. Yeah, <laughs> just you know that same feeling of like it's just a change, and I think at. When you, when you get to a certain point in your life, and some people have a lot of loss in their through. I had friends who lost parents and friends really early on, so it's not necessarily that it happens in in my phase, but a lot more friends die, and a lot, your family starts. I mean, really, you know, um, there are funny parts in the book, but but uh, I, don't I know I'm making this sound no, 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 but maudlin just, and depressing, no, but, but it's I mean, a great it is like it's real, and I think that that you know that's when friends started to get sick, and my you know my parents, you know, all that stuff. So it is. You know, those seemingly smaller things like being able to go into your kid's bedroom and have them blab. And when that stops, it's like, ah, I can't take it. I'm going to put the dog in a sling, you know. (laughs) So can we back up and go more into your life a little more and then we can come back to the book? So you wrote these amazing books many years ago. How did that all happen? Why was there a big break? Like what, what was it like being so successful then and then what is it that happened? I know you said your parents passed away, but that made these this last decade so painful yeah. for you. So I had kind of a weird trajectory. I worked in book publishing in New York for 10 years. I worked, my last job was at Knopf and I was a book publicist. That's why I was early today. Thank you. I'm always early. But um, so I did that for 10 years and I was always writing in my spare time, of course, which there really wasn't because my job was very time consuming. And then at a certain point after 10 years, I moved to Washington because I was tired of New York. I got a job at the Smithsonian. I was home at 5.15 every day because, you know, government. And I ended up going back to a novel I had I had written a draft of. And I redid it. And that fall, I sent it to an agent and I got really lucky. It was um, sold in the States. It was sold in about 25 countries. It sold to the movies. I had one of those experiences where I was like very quickly able to quit my day job. It was 
Wow. Fantastic. And, and that was which book? That was and Animal that Husbandry? Was Animal Husbandry. Yeah. And so that really started my career. And I had three more novels published. Um, two of those other ones were optioned. My third novel was optioned by Julie Roberts. And my fourth novel was optioned by Tom Hanks for Near Vardalis for my big fat Greek wedding. And because Hollywood is Hollywood, those things, you know, for various reasons didn't happen. And then we moved to Boston. I had met my husband in D.C. We moved to Boston. We had a son. We ended up buying a house. I'm from Boston. We ended up buying a house accidentally, like a mile from my parents, which I never wanted to move home. It was sort of one of those weird, you know, Freud says there are no accidents. So they were, it clearly wasn't an accident. We ended up living in my hometown, which was probably a bad thing. So that started a kind of regression that probably shouldn't have, shouldn't have been living like right there. But it was nice. You know, my son was little. My parents were around. They would babysit. I could write that kind of thing. But I sort of started, my career started to have little, you know, things would go wrong or things wouldn't happen. And then I was diagnosed with breast cancer and then my parents got sick. And so it was a whole, and what you don't realize is you sort of think like, oh, I'm just going to crank out a book every year, every two years, every three years. And what you don't ever take into account is like, stuff's going to happen. You know, you're going to have years where you can't write, where things are happening in your life, where people are sick, where you have to, you know, tend to things. And, you know, the creative process is very delicate. And there were just years where I was like, oh, I can't write this year. And it just, time was going by. And at a certain point, I shifted into ghostwriting. I was able to, um, it sort of happened, you know, by accident, but I sort of shifted into ghostwriting. And then I really liked ghostwriting. It was a way to earn money and it was a way to work really closely with someone and get their story. It's a really interesting process to me. It's like you... You know, you clock all these hours with them and get them to tell you stuff that they've probably never told anyone, if you're lucky. And then you write their story. And it, there was a relief to that, right? I didn't have to produce my own stuff. But then, you know, I longed at some point to go back to my own uh, writing. But it took a really long time. I mean, it took a long time. And what were the, are you allowed to talk about what the ghostwriting things were? Yeah, yeah, most of them are not secret, but I worked with Wendy Davis, who was the Texas state senator who filibustered in her pink sneakers. I loved her. I worked with Eddie Izzard, who's the British cross-dressing actor on his memoir. I'm working with somebody right now, I can't say. And she's kind of a big star. And so it's like that and other stuff that I'm not named on. But so it's really interesting to me. And I really like doing my own stuff, too. So it was not really nice to get back to that. And what about writing essays or freelancing? Or was it just like you didn't want to do any, you didn't want to tap into any of your emotions? It, I, you know, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago, a friend of mine, Lisa Adams, Lisa Bonchak Adams, who a lot of people mm-hmm. who are probably listening to this podcast remember her. She died of breast cancer in 2015. And she had a huge blog. She kept in touch with a lot of people on social media. Um, and she was quite young when she died. She was from Darien, Connecticut. So I wrote a piece about her in Salon. And that was like the first piece I'd written in ages. And I just wasn't writing. Like I just, it was such a leap. I had no confidence. I hadn't done it in a really long time. And then I, um, I had worked for a tech company, a startup, and that went under. And a f- about a year after that, I was... I was ghostwriting a few different things, and I finally decided with the encouragement of my good friends in Boston, especially Alice Hoffman, who said, you know, you you just really have to try. And so I ended up going on Craigslist and finding that I could rent an office by the hour. (laughs) I was renting a shrink's office in Harvard Square because I couldn't afford, like, office space. Like, you know, you can go to Starbucks. And so, but I wanted, like, dedicated. So I would rent this shrink's office when she wasn't there. 
you know, Sundays and part of Mondays. And I, even if I sat there and stared at my phone, I was like, okay, this is my dedicated time. I'm not going to ghostwrite today. I'm not going to food shop. I'm not going to this, I'm not going to, I'm going to sit here and try to write. And luckily over the years, I had always been doing a little bit of something. So for instance, in 2012, I had made friends with Jennifer Weiner online. And that summer she said, come to the Cape. She goes, come, I want you to get back to writing. And I wrote a screenplay, which, you know, my agents loved, but they, they never sold. So I was able when I, you know, a couple of years later, when I, you know, rented the shrinks office by the hour um, to take pieces of that script, little pieces, and sort of have something to start with. So I always say when people are blocked, like just whatever you do is not wasted. Like if you, even if the script didn't sell, it felt at the time like, oh, waste. But it wasn't. It wasn't at all because years later, I took pieces of that. It, com- it was a completely different story, but I was able to use pieces and, and it got me going. So it's never, nothing's ever wasted. Do you feel like writing is something that you either have a gift for or not? Like, can it evaporate? Because it sounds like you were worried that you weren't a good writer anymore, whereas you felt confident you were a good writer back when all the deals are happening. And yeah. do you think you can just suddenly? not be a good writer anymore? Like, is it something elusive? It is elusive. It's confidence. And I think someone said that to me at a certain point, and it finally clicked. They sort of said, and I think there's something in the book about it, where it was Norman Mailer or someone said, there is no such thing as writer's block. It's a crisis of confidence. Mm -hmm. And if you look around, you know, there are books that are better than other books and books that are less good than other books. And it doesn't matter. Like, people might think they're really good, and they publish their books, and they write. And I remember someone saying to me, a good friend of mine was like, just write another book. It doesn't even have to be good, you know? And it's sort of like, it. what's really, I think, very delicate is the sense of yourself as, as, you know, do you have the confidence? Do you feel like you can take criticism? You know, when you have a book out, you have to take the good with the bad. So I've had some really nice, you know, I'm on a lot of lists for 2020. Also, I'm sure there's other stuff coming. You have to brace yourself. You know, you have to not really believe the nice things because then you have to, you know, you have to really kind of, shut down that part of yourself that really absorbs the negative, the negative stuff, because it can get very negative. And so that part can be very affected by the outside. And it's hard to, it's hard to protect yourself from that because it's a public thing. I mean, and the flip side is you want people to read the book. And I also understand like I go in every now and then I go on Goodreads, even though my friend Julie Claim is like, do not go on Goodreads. And every now and then, of course, I look at Goodreads and I'm like, I get it. Like, I'll see, a, you know, a review that's not so great. And I'll be like, no, I can see that. You know, I don't like it, but I, I get it. You know, I can understand or whatever. But you also don't have to really take it that serious. I mean, it's one person's opinion, that's you know, true. and it's, but it can, it, it is affecting. There are very few books that I feel like no. everybody likes. Right. Because usually what you like in a book is something that's speaking to you. Yeah. And people have all their different conversations right. in their own heads. How right. could something possibly... I don't know. And it's totally subjective. And it's totally, it's totally subjective. subjective. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I'm going to steal yourself. Well, hopefully yeah. not too much because yeah. I thought this book was fantastic. As I'm sure everybody... Well, back to the book for a yeah. minute now that I've pried into your life story. I also found it interesting in the marriage that you depict that Gary, the husband, has an anxiety disorder. And you tell it from the point of view of the wife and how she manages to live with someone with an anxiety disorder. Yeah. <clears throat> and... 
what the takeaway from that was. You write, I often wonder, as I do right now, if I'd known how much Gary and his anxiety might eclipse me, whether I still would have married him. If I'd known how hard things would be now, would I have made the same choice? Would he? Doesn't every married person ask themselves this question? I think they do. <laughs> I'm sure my husband asks questions about me as well, since I'm not the easiest person to live with either. But, you know, I've known a lot of people, and certainly in my own experience, you know, when you're dealing with a mental health situation, um, or emotional issues, there's a lot of sense out there. It's just like, oh, enough. You should you should leave. You should leave. You should go. You should, yeah. And if if you know if you're talking about a physical illness like cancer or some kind of physical illness, I mean, you would never tell someone who was you know had a, an ill spouse. It's enough already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've had a relapse. Like leave. You know. Right. And it's a whole different thing when you're dealing with marriages with one person who's struggling. And I know so many people in this position, and I myself have been in this position at times, and so it's very hard, you know, where you're trying to do the right thing for your person. And, you know, that's not to say every marriage has to stay, you have to stay together. I mean, people split up all the time, and people live good lives after that. I mean, it's what's right for you and what's right for your situation. But there is just, you're up against a, a sense that, you know, you're supposed to leave. And I thought one of the most interesting things, and I opened the book with this little quotation from Esther Perel, who has that, she's this, you know, she's had TED Talks about, um, she's a couple's counselor. I mean, she has a more elevated title than that. But, and she has this great po- a podcast about, you know, couples counseling. And one of the, one of the thing, most interesting things that she said that I heard was, she said it used to be that there was shame when people got divorced, and now there's shame when they stay together. And mm-hmm. there is this sense of like, if you're in an imperfect union, and most of us are in some fashion, there is this sense of like, oh, well, you could find something so much better. Now, that's not to say that there are times when you really need to leave, and that's not what I'm saying. But there are times when it's really gray. And there is a sense that you have to explain yourself why, why you're staying. Um, and I think Judy also feels like, does she want to stay? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's complicated. I mean, anyone who's <laughs> been married knows, you know, on both sides. Do you think there's anything that people like Gary can do to help their spouses? I mean, there are a lot of people who have anxiety disorders oh, yeah. or depression. Gary just or... happens to smoke a lot of dope, but yes, like a no. lot of people with <laughs> a lot of people are responsible when they see shrinks and they go through different kinds of. Um, uh, like behavioral training to do things for for anxiety. So it's just that in in this guy's yes. case, you know, his his go-to is like the freezer, you know, where yes. he keeps so his pot. And that's just his his thing. But um, most people I know are more you know, <laughs> do that, but and do other things too. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little more also about Judy's feeling of invisibility at her age and how she walks around and feels like no one notices her. They notice the stroller, or they notice yeah. the dog, or they don't really see her. I feel like there's a lot these days about how you get to a certain age and yeah. people just don't notice you, do. you like anymore. Clockwork. I mean, you're you're young and lovely. Wait till you get to be. I swear to God, it's like it's like. On the day you turn. I'm not so good, but thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but there is a sense. I mean, everybody looks better now because, you know, you know, the 40 is the new 30 and there's all this pressure. You're supposed to look amazing in your 60s. But, you know, there is a, an evolutionary biological imperative where, you know, it's like the male gaze. They know you're not fertile, mm-hmm. I guess. And, you know, in some really yep. ambient way. And so you get to a point where you either start to sense that or you just are like exhausted by life. And then you start to wear 
you know, boxy clothes, you know, you, yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> and and it, I mean, there's a scene in the book, but it would happen to me where I would be at like Trader Joe's and where they talk to you, you know, everybody, you know, you go through the line and the guy is always like, oh, I love your, I love this curry and oh, this is the best, you know, ice cream. And and then you get to a point where even at Trader Joe's, like they talk to the woman in front of you and then they get to you and they're just like yawning. And then that was like, okay, wait a minute. You know, this is, but, but there is a point where everything really shifts. And then there is also a piece of that where it's a relief, where you are invisible. You can walk down the street, you walk down a constri- you know, past a construction site, nobody says anything. And that's kind of nice. Like in the old days, that didn't happen. You know, you walk down past a construction site and someone, someone always had something to say. And now you can, it, there's like a relief and a bliss in being invisible. You can just dress however you want. You can wear a dog. I remember I got my hair colored one day and it, by the time I was done, it this was raining. Back to the out. highlights. I should have this sponsored by like this a hair all the hair. I'm going to, yeah. I'm but I got, I, I got my, you know, the gray covered. And by the time she was done with me, it was raining out. And okay, I, li- I live in Cambridge, so it's not like New York, but nobody cares what you look like anyway. But I didn't have an umbrella. She didn't have an umbrella. So she gave me a, a shower cap. So I put, you know, like a, just a yeah. really crappy shower cap. And she was sort of like, are you going to walk home like that? And I was like, oh, yeah. So I walked all the way home with a shower cap covering my hair because it just been blown. And I didn't care. First of all, nobody looked at me. And also, I didn't care. Now, if I were 30, I would never have done that. I would have, you know, yeah. never have walked home with a shower cap. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's part of this back and forth. Like you want to be seen and then there, sometimes you don't want to be seen. And so you have to, it's a shift that goes back and forth. So now that you're back in the writing world, <laughs> less than invisible in this industry, quite the opposite. Are you happy to be back? Are you like, oh, thank God I found my way back here and now I'm doing I'm in my happy place and I'm writing again and I can't wait to do more stuff? Is that how you feel or is it more complicated? Yeah, I mean, it is more complicated. I mean, on the one hand, I'm beyond thrilled. I never thought I would finish that book. I never thought it would sell. I mean, I ended up at a great publisher, Echo. They're great. Everything's great. I'm a great agent. I mean, I, no complaints, zero, zero. And I'm just completely thrilled. And I'm nervous because, like, I haven't started another book. And I, you know, the same, you know, it's like every time you do something, you think you can't do it again. And so I just did it. And now I'm like, I can't do it again. I'll never do it again, you know. Um, and I know I will. But it's just, it's very hard to write a novel. And when you get to the end of one, you're just like, wow, I I can't believe I did that. And then the idea of like being able to start again, because you know, there's my fifth novel, so, and I've written other books too. And so you just know how much work it takes. You know how many drafts. I mean, when you write the first 20 pages, you think you have it. And then you're like, nope. And you write the first 100 pages, you think you have it. It's like, nope. I used to show my husband my pages. And he used to write for The New Yorker. He's a really skilled writer and really smart reader. And and he only had the best intentions, like when he read the you know different versions of this. And I remember at the beginning he was just like, "No," and I'd go back and he'd be like, "No," and then finally it was like, "Yeah," like it finally was on the road. And it but it takes a while. It takes like draft after draft, and you're trying to get the voice right and first person, third person, third. You know what's the plot? It's hard, but. It's great. So I'm really, I hope that I, I have another idea for something and I hope that, you know, one of these days it, it gets started on it. 
You know, it's so funny because you would never think that you're sort of plagued by all this insecurity. You have, I, I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. You would just like go to a bookstore and you look at people's books and you're like, wow, they're so accomplished and that's amazing. And yet after all this time, you can say, oh gosh, I don't know if I can do it. Or- I think it's a myth, you know, and I think it's a myth that everybody is just like, think, you know, people think that like, I mean, I'm looking around this beautiful room of yours with all these books and, you know, I mean, there's sure there's some people more confident than others, but I think most most writers and most writers who aren't published yet mm-hmm. feel that, and it's normal. And you just, everybody faces that. Like, just because you have mm-hmm. published doesn't mean you're going to publish again. I mean, for someone who had the career I started out with, to then not have anything come out for 14, 15 years, like, that happens. You know, lots of people, I mean, there's lots of people publishing right now, same thing, we're like long stretches. And... I find those people really interesting because, like, you know, but it's it's challenging. You just have to kind of, like, push yourself each time. And do you have any, I feel like you've given so much advice throughout this conversation, any other advice to aspiring authors, people maybe starting out with their first book, aside from how hard it is, yeah. maybe more encouraging? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's just, like, there's also these, I do some coaching for people in my spare time. And, and I think a lot of people who are aspiring think that if they don't write every day or if they, you know, they look at Instagram and it's like, you know, hashtag am writing and they're supposed to be writing every single day. And if they're not writing, you know, that there are all these rules. And I'm just like, I go for years without writing. I mean, obviously don't follow my example. But what I mean is like, I'll go for months without writing and then I write a lot. And there is no right or wrong way. It's just like, what's right for you? And there'll be periods where you can't write. You're either busy with your family or you're busy with other work or you're busy or you just can't. And there are other things you can do. You can read, you can keep a journal, you can do whatever, you try to write a script. I mean, you can do all sorts of different things, even if you're unable to tap into that writer voice that you want. Um, So I think it's just, and also just remembering that nothing is wasted. Nothing. You know, if you're keeping a journal, you might be able to go back and use something. There might be something in there that you could start with, start a story with or start a novel with. And that nothing is wasted. And just because you're not, you know, you don't have pages or you don't have a manuscript or you're not doing it every day, just do it anyway. However you can, you know. Love it. Well, if anybody wants to hear more of Laura and me sitting and chatting like this, we're going to be live at the Stryker Center at Temple so Emanuel. Me too. When is it? May 5th? Yeah. May 5th. Like I think like so. Um, <laughs> sure, it's on the, it'll be on my website all over the place. So uh, come see us in person. And thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Zibby. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks to Libro FM for sponsoring today's episode. Remember to go to Libro FM, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M to get your next audiobook, support a local bookseller, and enter code Zibby for three audiobooks for the price of one. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. 